This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning and welcome to Radiotherapy, the premier medical show at 10am on a Sunday morning in the Southern Hemisphere. We're actually number one, yeah. Um, small show in Buenos Aires, but uh, it's uh, no equivalent. And have we got a show for you? Well, well, well. We've got special guests in the studio who are going to discuss and dissect every aspect of caring um, for those with uh, all manner of uh, disorders, but in particular dementia. Um, We're going to look at the burden carers carry and the critical role they play in our society. And we've got uh, Sue uh, Sue Leek, who is the coordinator of Alfred Health Dementia Programs, and uh, uh, we're going to talk to her. And we've got a carer as well. We've got Peter McDonald, who's been caring for his daughter for many years. So we're going to be talking to both of those. We've got the wonderful Anabolics, who has dragged herself out of the sick bed. As a matter of fact, she's looking a wee bit peaky this morning. And what a great effort. And I must say... I must say, it's the sort of effort that we expect from all of our people here in Triple R. But say, you are <laughs> above I, and beyond. I am a little bit below the weather, but you, you'll be proud of me, Mixith, because yesterday I was horizontal the entire day, and last night, because I had nothing else to do, I put it on Channel Seven. I watched the last last quarter of a football match, which I think is the second time in my life I've watched a bit of football. And what a spectacular quarter I must that say, was! For the first time I could say, I understand why people watch this stuff. It's quite exciting. Well, it was. It was. What what a weekend of football. Which brings me to the man on the panel, Kentus Maximus, who has endured a failed board reshuffle at uh, at Tigerland. And, uh, boy, what a dreadful year. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, we've got a wonderful show. And uh, Dr. Doctor. Just listen to this. <laughs> So, Anabolics, any particular news, anything uh, this week that's uh, caught your interest apart from the gastrointestinal <laughs> disasters that are befalling various people? Well, the, un- the only thing that uh, had me interested, well, there's lots of things, I suppose, but I am a little bit worried about the um, fallout from the plebiscite if we go ahead with the plebiscite because I do, I do worry about the mental health of people, young same-sex attracted people, if they start having brochures and leaflets sent around to people's houses and um, uh, a lot of money spent on, uh, you know, reasons why we shouldn't have gay marriage. I think I, that is a mental health issue for me because uh, we are going to see... I, I don't think there's any way you can stop that happening. <clears throat> we are going to have, as, it, as you might argue, it should be in any plebiscite. There should be vigorous uh, campaigning for both uh, sides of that argument. I can understand why people want to do that, but I think there is going to be a fallout from... Uh, some groups in our, some groups in our society who are very vulnerable, and that does worry me. So I, there's some recent things happening this week. There were some la- leaflets dropped in Sydney, um, pretty aggressively talking about you know what would happen if uh, gay marriage came in. So I, that does worry me. I think it's uh, something we're going to have to watch very carefully over the next few months if we go ahead with the plebiscite. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm similarly concerned about this, uh, not just about the plebiscite, but uh, about some of the other debate that's raging within our community about uh, asylum seekers and about yeah. uh, members of minorities. And uh, I would just plead with people, before you make public comment, before you disparage, put yourself in the shoes of the very person who you are making this sort of comment about and uh, imagine what they're going through. And I despair for some young not so much people who are very comfortable in their own shoes comfortable in their skin about where they stand but but for people who are uncertain for those who are uncertain about coming out those people who would then be uh, inclined to hide where their uh, where their true feelings are it's 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 problematic it's 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 a source of considerable concern Hopefully we can have some intelligent debate or we can have just a, a vote in Parliament. Who knows? But um, it is. It, we do have to keep a, a watchful eye on those vulnerable people in society who mm, are at risk, yeah. I think. Mm. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's get straight into it. Uh, and uh, Sue, now, Sue, you're 
uh, tell us a little bit about your role. Uh, you're at the Alfred, and you're the coordinator of the of the of the dementia programs. I am. Thanks for having me here today, McZiff. Uh, so my role is the coordinator of dementia programs within Alfred Health Carer Services. So what we do at Carer Services is support carers uh, across a quarter of Victoria. We're one of a number of carer respite centres around Australia. So wherever you live in Australia you live in the catchment of a, um, a carer respite centre. So wait, wait a minute. Wherever you wherever live... Wherever you live in Australia. So every single person yes. who is a carer mm-hmm. has access to respite. Is that what you're saying? That is correct, yes. So this is a program that started 18 years ago by the federal government recognising that care is an integral part of our health system. In fact, they provide most of the care for people with uh, health issues. It's not your um, medical system, no offence to the doctors, of course, but (laughs) they do the important part with the diagnosis and care. But I've got this amazing stat about Mm. the number of hours that um, informal carers provide uh, to families at home. It's something like 19 billion hours of care in 2015, it's a Deloitte economics figure. It, so it's mm-hmm. a lot of support that families and friends provide to somebody with uh, a disease or illness. So what is the range of, when you say carer, what are we talking about here? What's the range of... Okay, okay. so we work with uh, family members or friends or neighbours who are not paid to provide um, care or support to someone um, with some sort of uh, health or a disability issue so uh, carers are entitled to access a um, care allowance regardless of their uh, income a very minimal amount of money per week to support them um, and there's a whole industry of personal care attendants or care workers but we work with the uh, informal care support to people that's our brief so in Victoria, um, there's about nine centres and ours is auspiced by Alfred Health and we have three sites across the southern region. So we our catchments from the inner city right around the peninsula out as far as Bunyip up to Emerald. It's a really big area. But um, most people will be a carer in their life mm. or uh, know a carer. Yeah. Um, so one in five people will be a carer in their lifetime. So it affects everybody. So who would be the typical person ringing, ringing your organisation? When someone rings us, if someone's listening to this, they might ring up. Who would be, what would be the group of people that you say, oh. you speak to? Um, well, the majority of people that we work with, I think about 60% are women um, who are aged between 24 to 54. But um, there's about oh, over 4 million carers in Australia, uh, four million carers of people uh, in Australia and about 2.8 of them are carers of people with dementia. Really? So dementia is one of the, uh, well, the second largest killer of people in Australia. Uh, Mm. So it's a lot of family members and friends who are supporting someone. Um, And 94% of people with a profound disability are cared for at home Mm. by a family member or friend. And so what sort of services would you be able to provide for those people? Perhaps start, start with people with a significant disability or something. Okay. Well, um, the centres around Australia offer a 24-hour uh, telephone number that you can ring. So business hours, we have uh, staff on hand to talk to and provide um, service to people in their own homes. Um, overnight, there's a telephone number that people can call for emergency support or respite. Mm. So the um, federal government gives the centres funding to um, use money to purchase respite in an emergency. So if you're caring for uh, your elderly wife with um, who's frail-aged and you have a fall um, and injure yourself and you need to go off to hospital and there's no one you can call on to look after your wife and she's going to need somebody with her, you can ring us, and they do, before they ring the ambulance or while they're having their heart attack, Mm. and say, I need someone to come and help look after Mavis. Mm. And we say, right, well, we'll organise someone, but can you hang up right now and ring the ambulance (laughs) and we'll we'll get back to you in five minutes? Um, And that's the sort of thing we do. So we want people to have that number up on their fridge so that they know that... 
Uh, most people won't use it in an emergency, but it's a it's a great safety neck and a reassurance. So take me through what would happen to Mavis in that scenario. Okay, so Mavis um, would be at home. Um, hopefully uh, her husband is having the ambulance coming around quick smart <laughs> to help him. And in the meantime, our staff are um, contacting a personal care service and we'd be arranging for a worker to go directly to that uh, to Mavis um, and we'd be providing them with the details around how to get in the house and what Mavis's care needs are. It might be um, she'll just need somebody to help her with her lunch, help her assist her to go to the toilet, might be to um, give her medications. So we'll provide an emergency response and put somebody in there to help. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as soon as we know what's happening, our staff will liaise with the hospital f- to find out how long um, Mavis needs to be cared for. And then we might um, progress to help her stay in a residential facility for a week or two while her husband stays in hospital and recovers. That's the kind of thing we do. And short of that, I mean, that's a, that's a recognised crisis, obviously. It is where, uh, where Mavis's poor husband, Reginald or Arthur or whoever, <laughs> has, uh, has had some tragedy. Uh, do you do stuff that's sort of subacute? Sure. Well, when we get to know a carer, we encourage them to have an emergency plan so that if, if an emergency comes up, they're, they're prepared for that. But especially when... Um, the carer is the uh, most important person to look after somebody. So if something happens to them, which happens a lot, uh, particularly if your carers are older, they've got their own health issues and becoming a carer can compromise your own health as well. So we encourage people to have emergency plans for those circumstances. But um, mostly when we um, get to know a carer, we talk to them about all the sorts of things that they can do to stay well and um, have services and supports so that um, as they are caring for that person, there's um, a, a network and uh, services around them that are going to support them and that person um, with the care needs. Which is sort of taps into what, what I was going to ask about next. And one of the things, it, my experience in... in doing assessments over the years and, and hearing from carers is that it may not be the um, that one particular time when something terrible goes wrong. It's the accrued long-term or chronic burden of care where people actually get worn down by the demands of looking after invariably a loved one who who may not be the same person that they were when uh, when that love first bloomed uh, and uh, and the demands are are frequently endless they're they're basic demands um, they're physically uh, arduous so it can really wear down the the most well-intentioned person what sort of supports well, that's right. people what? people don't choose to become carers it happens to them and uh, we use an analogy with people um, sometimes. You know, when you're holding a glass of water, you can hold a glass of water for five minutes and it doesn't, I mean, it's no big deal. But the longer you hold that glass of water, if it becomes hours or days or weeks or years even, so if you're caring for someone with dementia, that could be ten years or more, it, that's a, a difficult task to um, keep going with without a break. And you need to be able to some, take some time out and restore your own energy levels and look after your own well-being. It's a message we uh, try and get across as often as possible so that people um, can continue to care. That's what often they want to do. And, and it's complicated because you may start off with great intentions, um, and, uh, but as the changes happen and the impact on your financial situation, um, your own health and well-being... Um, your own mental health um, it, it, it's a it can be difficult to continue it impacts your relationships with other people carers sometimes find it very isolating because there are no other people that they know who are walking the same journey as yourself and they don't understand what that's like um, and they can become quite alone and that's all has cumulative effects on uh, your ability to continue to cope and be well. 
So does it, are you able to provide then counselling services individuals or is it just you focus on respite care and things? Or can you, is there, are there a way that you can access um, direct support from your organisation to help you with that uh, long term? Well, depending upon the needs of the person that you're caring for. Um, so if you're caring for someone with a mental illness, it might be a different situation to someone who's frail age or living with dementia or it, your child that's been born, um, born with a disability or your spouse who's... Um, develop some sort of um, maybe terminal illness or very uh, severe chronic illness. So, so that varies. Um, but we, the, the federal government fund the National Carer Counselling Program, so we often refer carers for um, they, they're eligible for up to six sessions of counselling and uh, I know doctors are quite keen on knowing about that program because there's not much paperwork involved in referring for that program. And who does that? Who does that counselling? So uh, that's organised through each of the uh, care associations in the state, and they um, develop contracts with local psychologists right mm. across the country. Mm. So um, you can just go onto the site and uh, make a referral. But the message we give carers is: ring us, and and we will help you navigate the system because it is very confusing. So we have the telephone service and then we also have carer support programs, which means that you will be introduced to uh, a, a worker who will come and visit you at home or wherever is convenient in the office and help guide you through the service maze. So that may be linking you into counselling. It might be looking at specific respite needs that, that you have. It might be linking you to services that would really help enhance your situation um, help you navigate uh, particularly if you're in the hospital system or um, uh, some other like at the moment with um, the rollout of the NDIS that's a very mm. confusing time for people mm. uh, and knowing how best to optimise your situation and access the services um, that are best going to meet your needs that's mm. something that carers are finding uh, quite daunting and it's helpful for them to be guided by us who spend all week learning how to do this <laughs> and I've been in aged care now for 15 years and I don't know everything that's available let alone mm-hmm. someone who has has never had to understand the system before and is trying to find out you know how best to care for their mum or their spouse mm. or somebody and I think one of the interesting things that adds to that confusion or the difficulty of entry is that one of the things that I've uh, observed over the years working with people who have been assisted by carers and family is that sometimes the carers feel really ambivalent about seeking care for themselves there's something maybe I'm not allowed to do this I shouldn't be complaining I shouldn't be I you know I'm going to feel guilty if I seek help you know this my my, my loved one is the person with the problem mm. um, you know just because I feel angry some days I shouldn't get you know, there's a very um, complex kind of a, a set of emotions that go with caring and some some of them prohibit people feeling open to the counseling services that are there have you, have you struck that absolutely people who become carers are um, amazing members of society because they're uh, often sacrificing their own health and well-being and work and finances and social networks to care for somebody else for for a whole range of reasons it might be because they genuinely love this person more than anybody in the world but but it can be because of obligation and guilt and Mm. um you know a whole range of complex circumstances (laughs) and they're the kind of person that is uh self-sacrificing in some in some ways so that that they're putting themselves um, last. Mm. Um, Peter might ha- have some comment to make about this. But we also, we very much have to tell people, uh, remind people to take care of themselves, that um, we know that in um, the case of spouses of people with dementia, so if you're over 65 and you're caring for somebody with a severe um, dementia... Yeah. The research indicates that you've got a 63% chance of dying in the next five years. Now, what job would anyone take on if they thought it was going to have that significant an impact on their health? Now, you want to continue to care for that person, you need to be looking after yourself. That's really important. And that's a, a, a useful segue. We're going to um, come to Peter MacDonald, who's been caring for his daughter for, uh, for a number of years. 
You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You're with Anabolics, with me, Sigmund McZiff, and with our master, Kansas Maximus, who uh, controls us all. And we've got two wonderful guests on the show. We've been listening to Sue Leek, who's the coordinator of the Alfred Health Dementia Programs. And we've got a carer in here, uh, a real live carer, and uh, what an impressive-looking gentleman he is, Peter McDonald, who's been caring for his daughter for many years now. Peter... Tell us a little bit about your story, about yourself, and uh, just flesh it out a little bit for us. My daughter um, was born with a genetic syndrome called VCFS, Velocardial Facial Syndrome, also known as the George Syndrome. Um, it, in the modern technology now, I think it's referred to as 22Q11 deletion, which doesn't mean a great deal to me, apart from the fact that uh, part or all of chromosome 22 was missing uh, when she was conceived. Um, part of the anomalies of this deletion is that there's about 150 of them, um, my daughter, at last count, had about 54 of them, one of which is a degenerative psychiatric condition. I've never really um, been explained what that means, but uh, she has been diagnosed as um, acute schizophrenic uh, for the last 20 years. For the last 10 years, she's actually been in a secure unit at Dandenong Hospital. For 10 years? She hasn't been out of hospital. Mm. Uh Um, At this stage, her medical problems are almost or or equal to her psychiatric problems because of the genetic condition. Um, We're probably, I wouldn't say unique's the right word, but... Um, because Fiona's been so well looked after for 10 years, uh, my wife and I have uh, diverted some of our attention to helping other carers and advocating for better conditions in mental health. Um, it's... I would like to think that we've had some effect over the last 20 years. We've come a long way in mental health. Uh, We've certainly still got a long way to go. But um, carers, I don't think, well, in my opinion, I don't think anybody that isn't a carer can imagine uh, the things that you've got to endure because... Even though my daughter's in hospital, it's still a full-time job. Uh, We can have six or eight phone calls a day um, for the most... um, what a lot of people would consider as insignificant things, but in my daughter's mind, they're they're obviously a a concern to her. Uh, So you you handle this... um, as part of the process of being a carer. We had a a family meeting uh, just recently where we discussed uh, a lot of things about um, my daughter's future and it's... um, Well, mentioning it to other carers, they were amazed because they said, how do you get a family meeting? And, and my um, reaction, I suppose, was um, it's the way you deal with professionals. Uh, one, of, one of my um, maxims, I suppose, is there's no point in getting angry with services. You can be assertive and that's what gets results. Um, nobody likes to be told no all the time. Uh, but you've just got to keep chipping away. So you've been uh, involved with with 
mental health services or services in general for, for, for many years and you've extended this now to, to your role as a mentor, a guide to other people who are carers. What are the sort of... Um, what what are your experiences? We we were talking out uh, in the green room uh, earlier about male carers. Uh, given the fact that you said that uh, that uh, and and Sue agreed that uh, the majority of carers do happen to be women. Women uh, women occupy most of the caring roles within our society. But but you're you've you've had some experience with uh, with other men. I'm involved with a group called the Barbecue Boys, and. Initially, it was for carers of somebody with a mental illness, but we've expanded it to carers, and we have even got a couple of members who are now no longer in the caring role because the person they uh, cared for uh, is no longer with us, but because a major part of their life has been a carer, we feel that you know we can fill the void to to put it you know plainly um, and why we focus on uh, males because um, you know men are their own worst enemies I think you know you've got to be macho and um, think of everybody else but yourself we we had mental health week just recently and uh, we got a group of people from our carers group uh, and we actually went to St John of God Hospital at Berwick for a presentation and I think there was about 40 men in the room and I think St John of God were overwhelmed because they catered for lunch and the sausages were a bit thin on the ground I've got to say <laughs> <laughs> but um you know, it, it's it's all attitude. Uh, Sue made a comment before uh, about the pressures. I've been asked many, many times why I laugh so much. And my immediate response is, well, what's the alternative? Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you let your caring role overcome, you, you know, you're no longer a carer because you're the one that needs uh, caring for. It sounds to me, Peter, like you'd be a great mentor to all those men that have joined the Barbecue Boys for that attitude because we know how protective having a positive attitude is. is I could go into this whole study, nun study, if you've ever heard of it, about positive Mm. psychology, but um, it's a real focus of what we at Alfred Healthcare Services try and do is um, not only give people information about services but really focus on how important it is just to look after yourself and also to to have that positive attitude in a difficult situation because that's what's going to keep you going and keep you caring for as long as you can. Well, up until um, 12 months ago, we were supported by Alfred Health uh, Care Services and, you know, in this day and age where funding... uh, becomes a problem Uh, we went out on our own and in my opinion it was probably the best thing that's ever happened because becoming an independent group we've had to go out and do our own fundraising Uh, at the moment we are doing sausage sizzles at a master store which we're That's not going to last very long. long. We're yeah. going to have to look for another <laughs> funding source. But uh, I think it's done so much for the the blokes in our group for their self-esteem. It's just incredible. You've seen blokes, you know, grow in stature uh, because they're not reliant on people. They're doing their own thing. Um Peter, you mentioned uh, the, the, the role that men play of looking after things and being in control. That, to me, often seems like one of the big barriers for male carers or the, if they're the partners of predominantly female carers, that sense of being in an area where you're not familiar, you're not confident, you're not, you haven't got competence. You know, as you say, you, you've you know, been introduced to the, suddenly introduced to the world of dementia or the world of the mental health service, and it's not an area you feel like you know well. So you're, 
you're back in the sort of on a back foot. So a lot of men, I think, feel really uncomfortable saying, I don't know what I'm doing here. And this, the, the way you're talking with the other guys, this must be a wonderful way of sharing competence and sharing information. It must make them feel much more confident in what they're doing, does it? Well, the thing is, over the 20-odd years that I've been a carer, I think the most important asset that I've found is talking to other carers mm. because collectively we've all been there and done that and you know we mightn't have all the answers but we know the the paths to go down to get an answer and it's interesting you we we talk about the the notion of caring uh, as uh, this specific role that people have adopted uh, in Western society. But uh, in days gone by and in other cultures where people lived in villages, there was this, this was an accepted part of what happened. If you had someone who had a need, whether it was from a mental illness, a physical disability, whether it was dementia, the, the village would gather around and everyone would uh, would have a particular role. And they would, by definition, talk about it, share the burden. There would be this uh, this experience. And it seems to me that what you're talking about with the barbecue boys, there is a, uh, a sharing of experience, a validation that it's okay to feel whatever it is that you feel. And in particular, um, this uh, the autonomy that you're describing in terms of freedom from external funding, uh, a, a, a sense of empowerment that, hey, um, we're actually doing this, we're succeeding and there's others around and it's not just me uh, in my own little area looking after the person I'm looking after. I'm part of a, of a bigger group. I'm part of the broader society and we're actually, we're doing something. We're achieving something. Uh, is that the sense that you've got? Well, it, it's... The way I would look at it, it's like a growing process. We've got one particular bloke. He's our uh, sausage sizzle expert. And... You know, he's come out of... Well, I believe he's come out of his shell. Uh, and it, it's been to the group's benefit because he's, you know, he's really hands-on. Um, we have another bloke that makes jam and we sell this jam as a fundraising um, effort. And, you know, I've tasted a lot of jam over the years, but this guy makes the best jam. <laughs> You're speaking about one of the things that I've noticed about carers over, over my years, and that is the amazing capacity for creativity amongst carers. It always bowls me over when I hear how people manage. You know, I can be sitting there as um, Dr. Bloggs and say, no, I think you should do this, and I think you should do that, and it might not be good. And then someone will come in and say, well, actually what we found works is, <laughs> you know, take, taking John for a cup of coffee every Tuesday morning, and we are, ta- you know, and, and you'll it's just wonderfully creative uh, solutions that carers find to help them manage and to help their loved one. It's, it knocks me out. And, you know, making jam, who knew, you know? Fantastic. Uh, well, you can't underestimate the importance of uh, that peer support. So I'm curious, um, Peter, if we'd said to you guys, oh, come and join the men's support group, whether you would have all run for the hills, as opposed to creating a social group, a barbecue group, where blokes came along and did something very quintessentially Australian male Um, and we know that when we as workers when we talk to carers and say take care of yourself do this do this or suggest it obviously Mm -hmm. not quite like that (laughs) um, that what matters is when they listen to other uh, carers about their experience that makes such a big difference and we try and create lots of opportunities to bring carers together through a whole variety of education programs that we offer on different topics to do with their caring role and that may be practical information or actual specific education around particular conditions like dementia or um, um, around issues to do with Down syndrome or whatever it is. We run all these courses around the region um, that you can find out about on our website and there are carer support groups. We run retreats for a couple of nights away for for carers, which is a really powerful experience because it gives people uh, a couple of days away. I think you've been on retreat. We were talking before about beautiful Marysville. Well, you know, that's part of talking to like-minded people. Mm. 
nobody understands the, the problems that carers have uh, except carers. You know, sadly, there are still stigmas that exist out there in our communities. Um, and, you know, you, you can tell immediately when you talk to somebody that really understands what you're going through. Well, Peter, what would you... We have lots of listeners in the medical sector on, on this show. What, what are the, like, a key thing that you would love um, doctors, nurses, allied health people working in this field to really, you know, get when it comes to dealing with carers? What, what are the important things you, you want them to know and you want them to do? Well, a couple of weeks ago, I went to a conference in New Zealand, FEMS conference, if you heard of uh, the term, um, and... The theme of the conference was authenticity. Now, I think that's a big word, authenticity, but um, what I put it down to is uh, you've got to be real. And to me, that's what's missing in the relationship between most clinicians and consumers, uh, which... Uh, you know, I, I think that people, particularly with mental illness, I think they should be patients. Uh, I don't know where we got off the track, but um, you've got to be real, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. Um, there's no point in, in having a, a false relationship uh, because it doesn't get anywhere. So what sort of things would I say, if I was uh, working with your daughter, for example, what sort of things, and you came in with me perhaps to a meeting or we had a family, what sort of things would you hear from me that would indicate to you that I was being real about your situation? What would I be saying that would say, okay, she gets it? Well, uh, I mentioned before that we recently had a family meeting and to me it... The relationship that we've developed with Fiona's treating team uh, is that it's almost like a family discussion. Mm. Uh, you know, we don't use medical terms and we don't, um, you know, bring out the Mental Health Act to emphasise things. Uh, it, it really is like something across the kitchen table. Uh, and I think that's what most people would like it to be. And that's powerful stuff. It sure is. It sure is. Now, Sue, uh, if uh, there are carers out there who, uh, in particular, um, with uh, um, family members who have dementia, uh, what's the, 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 the key thing that you want to get across to them and how can they get in touch with the, the particular caring service that's uh, um, uh, in their area? Well, I suggest that they get their paper and pen and write down this phone number, that, but you'll find it in the front of um, the white pages if anyone has one of those anymore, uh, <laughs> or you can Google it. Uh, it's one eight hundred o five two triple two. That's one eight hundred o five two triple two, which is our uh, 24-hour phone number right around Australia if you want to find out what your local uh, carer services have to offer. And, uh, I, you know, I'd like to reiterate with Peter uh, how important it is that uh, the professionals uh, take notice of who it is that's providing um, the informal support to someone. The doctors, allied health professionals, nurses, they're focusing on the person with the illness or the disability often. And um, when we speak to carers... One of one, the feedback that we get from them is it's just really nice to be asked how they are mm, and mm. how they are coping. Mm. Um, there's been a lot of talk this week about young carers. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of um, people. They say that there's the stats are something like uh, there's two to three children in every class that have significant caring responsibilities for a, a sibling or a parent. They may have a mental illness or a disease or a um, chronic condition. And 60% of these kids will go on not to work because it's so hard to study when you've got those responsibilities um, 
It's um, if you're worried if mum's coping okay or if she's just been admitted to hospital because she's had a psychotic episode or something. So it's um, it's a real awareness in society that there are people out there with these responsibilities and that uh, we want to make sure that the carer is also cared for. Mm. And uh, thank you both. That's uh, absolutely wonderful insight into the... Uh the services that are available for carers and uh, that are perhaps uh, not uh, as utilised as uh, as they may well be, and the experience of a carer from uh, from Peter. So thank you both very very much for coming in. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. And uh, so after that fascinating discussion on uh, on caring, um, there's been a little bit of uh, of uh, background noise. The uh, ombuds uh, ombudsman uh, Susan Glass, who was uh, one of our guests in uh, in here, um, a fearsome defender of public rights, she's uh, been having a look at uh, at some of the processes involved with independent medical examinations. Now, many people would not even think about this. What's uh, an independent medical examination? An IME is the term. Well, if you're, uh, say, for example, a worker uh, or uh, someone who's uh, been involved in a motor vehicle accident and you put in a claim, you may have to undergo what's called uh, an independent medical examination. The insurer, which might be one of the work safe or work cover appointed insurers or the uh, Transport Accident Commission, the TAC, may well send you uh, along to have an assessment uh, by a, a medical specialist an independent specialist. Now, say for example, it's a, it's a TAC claim. Now, if somebody who has, uh, who has had a, a motor vehicle accident, they may have uh, broken bones, they may have scars, they may have uh, sustained a head injury, uh, or they may have been traumatized by the experience of the motor vehicle accident. And they might be sent to an orthopedic surgeon for the, for the bone fractures, a plastic surgeon to assess the scarring, a neurologist or neuropsychologist to assess the effects of a head injury and a psychiatrist to also uh, assess the head injury side of things, but in particular whether there's any post-traumatic stress disorder from the accident itself. And that independent specialist, that independent medical examiner, will then prepare a report which goes back to the insurer and which is then used to determine uh, it might be to determine what sort of treatment is required or what uh, what the level of impairment is, so what impairment benefits an individual may receive. In the case of a, a workplace injury, somebody might fall off a ladder, they may um, trip over uh, uh, um, on a floor, they may injure their back lifting some sort of uh, heavy weight, they uh, and in which case they will be, if there's a physical injury, they will be referred to a medical specialist, for example, an orthopedic surgeon to assess their back injury or uh, another uh, different type of medical specialist, an occupational physician, for example. Uh, and if there's a stress claim, which uh, we are hearing about more and more, they may well be referred to an independent psychiatrist. Now, the experience of going along and seeing uh, an IME, independent medical examiner, is different than going along to any other medical examination. It's not a confidential assessment. It's not like you're seeing your own doctor and uh, a report is prepared which goes to somebody other than yourself. And that report is then used to determine how, uh, what, what sort of treatment you might receive or what sort of compensation you, you may receive. And uh, it's a complex process. And uh, one of the... Um, one of the things that the ombudsman uh, has been looking at is whether there's a, a, an element of bias in some of the IMEs that have been taking place. And that's been uh, a, a source of considerable concern for many people. And I don't know, um, I, I, I think that we haven't heard the, the end of, uh, of, of that yet. When I, sorry, I just enjoy, I haven't heard, I haven't read the report, but do you mean that the TAC is paying the independent medical examiner 
and for example, and therefore there might be a tendency to want to give a report back that the TAC would want to hear? Well, it's, that, well, well it's, much, it's much less of an issue with the TAC these days because the TAC has shifted. Um, there's been uh, a recent very substantial change to a process called the JME or Joint Medical Examination. So the Joint Medical Examination takes mm-hmm. place where a... Um, instead of somebody going along, for example, to see a TAC-appointed IME and then having their own solicitor and going along and seeing uh, another specialist from uh, who, who is requested by the, the, the plaintiff solicitor, uh, they now go along and they see one specialist who does an assessment for both sides, for the TAC and for the person's solicitor. And that that person is acceptable to both, and mm. uh, that is the that, okay. that, that, that's the final report. Right. That, that's not applicable at present uh, with work cover type uh, type claims. But if somebody uh, is unsatisfied with the uh, opinion of a, of an independent specialist uh, in 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 a workplace assessment. There are many paths that people can go down, and uh, one of the paths is um, to, um, to to go to conciliation, uh, which is a, a, a specific process, and then there is the role of the medical panels. Now, medical panels is uh, people may have uh, heard that t- that term bandied about, but it's actually there is an organisation called medical panels, which are government-appointed doctors who are uh, there to resolve disputes. And uh, they are completely independent. They are not um, there at the behest of, uh, of either side, so to speak, even though the whole process is um, supposed to be, or all of these independent specialists are, are by definition independent and they are to provide an assessment which is not... Um, to suit any one particular side, but that's what the ombudsman has been uh, has been examining. So the process is uh, can be um, can be very stressful for people going along. I mean, uh, you you imagine you you go along and you see a specialist who's got often uh, a ream of uh, of papers of uh, of all of the various reports that have been written about you. And uh, so they know your story, they know about your injury, and they're there to make a specific assessment about uh, about you. And uh, you're, you're asked all manner of questions. If it's uh, an orthopedic surgeon, your, your back, for example, your legs will be examined, uh, depending on the type of examination. Uh, it, it, and it can often be very, very confronting and challenging. Um, but uh, it's... Ultimately, it is there to try to determine as accurately as possible what it is that has been going on, what is the most appropriate form of treatment, and uh, what is the level of impairment. It must be really quite a strange interaction, mustn't it? You know, not talk, as you say, not talking to your doctor who's going to see you again next time or suggest something. It, it really is an assessment. It really is a kind of a clinical breakdown of uh you know what what are you doing how high can you lift your arm how how depressed are you it must, it must be a very strange experience for a person to go through well having done many of these over the years mm. as uh, uh psychiatric independent examinations um uh it's the, the first few minutes are really important mm-hmm. in the examination in in really clarifying w- what the role is what my role is and uh, mm. what uh, trying to make the person as comfortable as possible, and uh, um, you, you often find people are are a bit guarded uh, at the outset, but the vast majority settle very quickly. That's uh, that's certainly what I've experienced. But it's definitely different than when I'm consulting with my private patients. It's uh, it's a very different experience. But it needn't be. Um, as stressful or as unsettling as uh, as some people experience. Do you find yourself in that situation? I mean, I guess the stakes are so high for people. It's their finances and their situation with work. And do you find yourself able to kind of tease things out without a sense of the person exaggerating or underplaying? Or how do you kind of tease that out? Because you're not going to see them again. They obviously worry about what you're going to say. It must be very difficult to do an assessment that's kind of really, truly unbiased in some ways. It must be quite hard. 
It, it is, and uh, and not infrequently we end up uh, independent specialists end up in court, where yeah. uh, which is the ultimate determinant of the accuracy of our assessments. And certainly, there are people who uh, who will embellish um, because that's. You know, um, but it, it, I, I don't. I think the majority of people, the, what they really want is is to be heard. Mm. And uh, and and uh, Peter mentioned earlier uh, in in talking about uh, about being a carer, about uh, authenticity. Um, I think that uh, you, one can, uh, as a as an independent examiner, one can uh, pretty quickly pick up authenticity. I think at the end of the day, you've got two human beings sitting in a room trying to come to some sort of understanding about what it, what, what the story is. And I think if you go in, if you happen, and anybody out there happens to be in that sort of situation where you're trying to tell your story, just tell your story. Mm. Um, that's, that's what is important. And if you're not satisfied with the process of telling your story, there are a variety of options available to you to say, well, I don't think I was really heard. I don't think this person actually took into account what's going on for me. And I think that that is, um, you know, I think most of us in our professional lives strive to be as authentic as possible. And, you know, we may trip up. We may fall over. We may get it wrong. You know, we have bad days. We have bad weeks. We have crap going on in our own lives, and we may not be as switched on as empathic as uh, as some people would wish us to be at various times. But uh, and 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 I think that that that's another thing. You know, I I've always appreciated uh, whether it's uh, one of my private patients or whether it's someone I'm doing an independent assessment if they don't think I'm actually hearing what they're saying I really like being told that Uh, I I find that that's a learning experience for me and uh, something that I can carry with me so uh, I I think that uh, don't be satisfied with something that's unsatisfactory and uh, that would be my my message about this uh, about this whole process well we do spend a lot of time in the green room whipping into it into shape don't we really we've had to tell you over the years when to absolutely pick game up and absolutely like and uh, um you know we succeeded with tall man we got him off the show and, completely uh, yeah yeah <laughs> oh we love you tall man yeah <laughs> yeah so now we're coming towards um we've it's ten fifty nine and uh, and the scientists um you know, we, we, we always we're very fortunate that we have the scientists coming in here before we start out and uh, it's just to let us know that they're here you know it's, they're, they're like a sort of uh, you know a female praying mantis just sort of uh, hovering <laughs> they're nodding over there in the studio yeah, furiously <laughs> furiously nodding i mean i mean they're, they're an impressive group i mean of geeks but they're but they're they are impressive and and they're waiting but we have had uh, a wonderful show i really want to thank sue from uh, from the alfred and peter uh, our uh, our carer and uh, it's really been enlightening for us to to have you here and thank you very much and anabolics who has uh, um uh, against all odds overcome great discomfort um, i should sign into a handkerchief at this point yeah. saintly we would say and uh, so uh, thank you all of you out there for listening to us and for Kent behind the panel and um, we're going to hand over to the scientists and we'll be back next week with uh, another episode of uh, of the best medical show at 10am in the Southern Hemisphere This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au. 